How's everyone doing? Okay, so I actually have two funny stories to tell, <laughs> to tell you guys. I only had one for the other services, but this one just happened. So we, we have, like, cameras all over the church, you know, and, like, don't feel awkward or anything. It's just, uh, but there's, like, this back room, and I was kind of sitting there by myself, and, like, <laughs> I had, like, something in my nose, right? And so I'm sitting here, like, messing with my nose, and it hits me. Some security guys in the room back there thinking that, like, Corey goes to hidden locations and, like, picks his nose. And, um, <laughs> and I was like... Oh God, you know, like, you know, just like had to like, like stop and, and, and worried. And, and, um, anyways, that's, that's one. Uh, the other ones didn't get that one. So you're welcome. Uh, the other story is, um, okay. <laughs> so I have two, two little girls, a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, and they have an imaginary like language that they've made up called sparkle. And, um, <laughs> And they speak to each other in sparkle. So sometimes you'll just hear my kids like speaking gibberish and, and they're, they're, they're very smart kids, uh, but they made up their own language called sparkle, right? So um, we're at Dollywood a couple of weeks ago and I meant to tell you guys the story and I forgot, but we're in Dollywood and uh, we took our kids there because, you know, they've never been and the last time Alicia and I went was like 12 years ago or something. And, and so we're sitting there at Dollywood and we're in the line to get on like some roller coaster or something and, and all four of us are waiting and the family in front of us is uh, Hispanic, right? So they're all speaking Spanish to each other. And Vi, my youngest, is just like, her eyes are like huge and her mouth is open. And real loud, she grabs my wife and she grabs my oldest daughter and she's shaking them. She goes, they're speaking sparkle. <laughs> and, um, and my wife was like, trying to like put her behind her. She's like, no, they're not, you know? And like trying to like clean this up real quick you know, before anyone heard us, uh, being very culturally insensitive. So, um, yeah, so if you ever want to learn Sparkle, my, my girls can, can happily tell you, it changes frequently. So uh, it's a very fluid language that they speak, my kids. So um, anyways, let me tell you what we're doing today. Uh, something I've never done before, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm slightly embarrassed by this. It's something I should have done a long time ago. Uh, we take communion here every single week. So if you've ever been to church here, there has never been a service in seven and a half years that we have not taken the Lord's Supper together, communion together. And we do it a little bit differently. Um, it's a bigger church, and so as the church has grown, it's not as intimate as it used to be. It's something where we kind of, you know, trust you and invite you to, to get the, the, the elements and to go back to your seats and to kind of have this personal time, either with your family or friends or just by yourself, to, to kind of commune with the Lord and respond to the service. But I'm embarrassed to say that I don't think I've ever uh, taught a lesson on communion, just simply on communion in the seven and a half years that this church has existed, and, um, and I should have by now. Uh, there are two sacraments mentioned in the New Testament that the Lord tells us to partake in. Sacraments are, it's the fancy word for a, a physical display, like a ceremony that represents a spiritual thing. Baptism is one, and communion is the other. And I teach on baptism three, four times a year, and I've never sat down and taught a, a communion lesson to our church. And so, so I ask for uh, your apology, or I apologize uh, for that, and, um, but hopefully today, this is what I want to get across. And if you've never been with us, uh, what we do here and where our comfort zone is, is we do whole books of the Bible. We're going to do the whole book of Philippians for the rest of this month. And um, then we're going to jump into the Gospel of John. We'll be in that for a thousand years or however long that takes, uh, a long time. Um, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. But that's, that's our comfort zone, Josh and I both. That's where we feel the most comfortable, just teaching straight from the Word of God. Uh, but times like this are important. And so what I hope to accomplish today, I'm going to do the best I can, is to, to push this point home, that the Lord's Supper, otherwise known as, as communion, or some people, if you were raised Anglican or Catholic or Lutheran or Episcopal, they call it the Eucharist. Uh, communion or the Eucharist is a vital 
part of the Christian experience. It is, it is immensely important. And so my hope today is to show you biblically and kind of historically why this is such a big deal and why if you choose to take it, it's a very reverent thing. If you choose not to take it, to be respectful of those around us uh, who are taking it. And um, my hopes is that, that I just show you the, the importance of this ceremony, this act, this sacrament, okay? So I'm going to pray. You should have everything in front of you. Neat picture. That's where the Last Supper was actually taken in the upper room in Jerusalem, but uh, neat picture there. Uh, you should have the notes in front of you. You should have, um, if you have version on your phone, if you click on the bottom right button, all the notes and everything pop up so you can follow right along. You don't have to flip back and forth, so all that's there for you. I'm going to pray. We'll jump into this, and um, we'll see what happens today, okay? Everyone doing okay? Is everyone ready for, like, fall to get back in? Like, yeah. yeah I'm kind of sad when summer ends, but I kind of, like, I need to be back in a routine. I slept till, like, 10 yesterday, and I wake up, and I'm like, what did I do, you know? And, like, I need to be, like, back in a routine. So um, that was just me confessing to you guys I was super lazy yesterday. So um, anyways, let me pray, and then we'll jump into this lesson. Lord God, I love you. I just want to tell you thank you. Lord, I get to, to be a part of such a great group of Christians, and I thank you so much. I love this church. I love our city. I love the people that I get to uh, fellowship with and be with, and I just thank you, God. Lord, um, we don't want to just pray for our group of believers, God. We pray for every church in our city. We pray for every nonprofit group in our city, Lord, like Young Life that we're sponsoring this month, and we just pray that your kingdom is advanced through other pastors and leaders and nonprofits and congregations, Lord, and we just pray, God, that you are made famous, Lord, not a denomination or a church, but, but you, Father, that our sights are on you, God. Lord, I pray that you keep your hand on me as I talk about communion today. I pray, Jesus, that all of us can have a better understanding of what this means, and maybe we can be more reverent and more appreciative for what this means, God. And I just pray that you keep your hand on us. Lord, we love you and we lift you up, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to just read a little bit from the book of Luke. That's the third book of the New Testament. I'm going to read from chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. Okay, let me read this to you. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and with the apostles, uh, and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread. He gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this is the cup of the new covenant established by my blood, and it is shed for you. So what is happening in this scene is this is the last time Jesus and his 12 closest followers, the 12 disciples, are going to get together and basically fellowship. They're going to eat dinner. They're going to come together. They're going to spend a lot of time just kind of hanging out until Jesus is arrested in the garden and taken to be crucified. So right before this scene, it's kind of an interesting story. If you get a chance this week, maybe go back and read it. Right before this scene, they need to find a place because essentially Jesus and his disciples did not have a permanent residency. So they needed to secure a location for them to get together and celebrate 
the Passover meal. And I'll talk about that here in a second. So Jesus sends out Peter and John. He says, hey, go into the city, go into Jerusalem. There's gonna be a guy walking around with a basin of water on his head. Stop that guy. And that guy is going to invite us to use his cool kind of upstairs loft for our last dinner. Now, what would have been interesting about that is men never carried water and basins on their head. That was the job of a woman in that culture at that time. So when they walked in, they saw a dude doing it, like that really stuck out. Well, that's obviously our guy. So they walked in, talked to this guy, and they had this cool place to now sit and have the Last Supper. Now, Jesus knew, and he told them this, we just read it, he knew that this is the last time they were going to get to have a meal like this together until eternity. Now, when we all get to heaven, we will share in a huge banquet feast with the 12 or with 11 of the 12, one of them didn't make it, right? But 11 of the 12 disciples, all the followers of Jesus over time, all of us will get together and feast. And that's what the Lord was referring to. So some of you guys who are history buffs, if you go back and study this, the Last Supper actually happened at an inappropriate time. What I mean by that is, it wasn't the normal time that they would have Passover. That would have been the next day but Jesus was uh, busy, if you will, being the Passover sacrifice, being the cru uh, getting crucified on the cross so they couldn't eat Passover on the day that it was supposed to be eaten. What Passover was, was it was a dinner that was a reminder of the past, of this deliverance that the Jews had experienced. The Passover, and I'm not gonna get into a bunch of detail, it was essentially a celebration of when the Jewish people were liberated from the Egyptians, the book of Exodus, right? And they were brought out of Egypt. Now the meal began where a host would invite people over for the Passover, Passover feast. He would have a cup of wine, which he blessed. And the cup of wine represented the provision, the sacrifice that God had made, the sacrifice of the animals, the blood that was shed, the provision that God had given so his people could be liberated. And what would typically happen is the host would bless this cup of wine and then choose an honored guest to give the cup to, right? What we see Jesus do, very different than the customs at the time, is Jesus blessed the cup and he said, all of you drink it. All of you take from this cup. And that's very symbolic. Everything that happens in this chapter is very symbolic. It shows that Jesus does not show favoritism to one or two honored guests. We are all honored guests at the table with Christ. So he shares this with everyone and they all get to partake in this cup that is blessed by God. So sharing the cup was symbolic. Everyone at the table drinking from Christ's cup not only showed that all of us are special to Christ, it also showed that we are all to be unified, that all followers of Jesus should be on the same team, that we are in this together. We may disagree at times, we may not do everything the exact same way, but Jesus wants us to be unified and he wants us to be unified looking forward to his return. And so the Last Supper, this supper that we're talking about right here, was looking forward to two major events. The first one was gonna happen almost immediately after the supper, that Jesus was going to die on the cross. The second thing that communion or the Lord's Supper looks forward to is what we're going to celebrate with him in heaven, that one day we will be at a great banquet Luke 14, 15 through 24, says that we will be at a great banquet with Jesus and with all the other believers, all the other followers of him. Okay, so wine was presented, right? Blessed, the cup was passed around. There was also lamb at the Passover feast and unleavened bread, so bread without yeast, flat bread, right? 
So when a family would celebrate Passover, what they would do is they would recite the story of the Exodus, the book of Exodus, but not just kind of like, like reading it or saying it verbatim. They would ask each other questions. Hey, you know, it was interesting about this in Exodus. What did you think of that? And then they would talk and they would go deeper and deeper and deeper. And they would kind of have this dialogue, this conversation about what God had done in the life of the Jewish people. Not only that, they would sing songs with each other. Specifically, there were a couple of psalms that they would sing every year. They would pray over the food and they would have a feast. They would have a long, drawn out, three or four hour time of reclining, hanging out and eating and talking. And so as Jesus kind of took the dad role at this last supper, he made a couple of very startling changes to this traditional feast. He said a couple of things that were very much not orthodox and, and the disciples knew what he was talking about. But if any other Jew would have been present, they would have freaked out at what Jesus did at this Passover feast. So the unleavened bread in Jesus's hands changes meaning. The bread during the Passover, why the bread was flat, is it reminded all the Jewish people that when they were leaving Egypt, they had to leave in a hurry, right? Most of you, even if you're not a Christian here, you know the story of that. Moses led them out of Egypt. They were running from the Egyptians, the Red Sea parts. They go through all this crazy stuff that happened. They were in a hurry. And so they ate unleavened bread because it reminded them that they did not have time to let the bread rise. So they were in a hurry, so they ate this unleavened bread to remember that. And in verse 19, Jesus says, he holds up the bread and he said, this is me. This bread represents my body, okay? He goes on to say something even more extreme. He took the cup, the wine, and he blessed the cup. And he said, this is my body. Now, during the Passover meal, you would drink four glasses of wine. Now, before you think that like all the Jews just got like wasted at Passover, right? They didn't get wasted at Passover. One, wine was a lot different in Jesus's time. You had to drink a lot of wine to get drunk. It wasn't fortified, it was different. The other thing is, they drank four glasses of wine, but it was over a long period of time, several hours that they would drink these four glasses of wine. And when they drank the four glasses of wine at Passover, it represented kind of four stages of God delivering his people. This is what it represented. God taking them out of slavery, rescuing them, redeeming them, and then the last stage, bringing them to the promised land. So every time they would drink this glass that represented kind of different stages, they would pray, they would sing, they would do all these things. And so what Jesus did is he took the bread, he took the wine, and he essentially said, all this celebration that the Jews have been having for centuries and centuries and centuries about God's deliverance and what God has done, Jesus was essentially saying, I'm the God that did that for you. Now, the disciples knew who Jesus was. They knew that he was God. But if you were a Jew just peering in through the window and you're like, wait a second, that guy just claimed to be the thing that we've been celebrating for centuries and centuries and centuries. It would have been extremely controversial. Controversial, it would have been blasphemous. So he was saying, when you take this now, remember me. Don't think about the past, think about me. So the Last Supper was essentially a new beginning. It was a launching pad for a different way to think about salvation and to think about what God has done for us. So in Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah was a prophet and he knew because he was a prophet that this was going to happen. He said, there's going to come a time 
When God is going to establish a new promise, a new covenant, a new way of doing things, and for his people, it's not going to be just laws written on stone, like the Old Testament, like the Ten Commandments. It's going to be God's law written on the hearts of men and women. And so just like the Old Testament was sealed because of sacrifice and blood, the New Testament was also going to be sealed by sacrifice and blood, but it's going to be the sacrifice of Christ and the blood of Christ that's going to seal this new promise. Things were about to change. So Passover to the Jewish people was a time of looking backwards. Remember what happened all these hundreds of years ago, but the Last Supper was a time of looking forward. And the, the disciples were instructed to look now at Jesus not at what had happened to the Exodus, but now to look at Jesus as the sole means for repairing the wrongs of humanity. Jesus was changing the whole thing. And so Jesus' followers no longer needed to follow uh, or celebrate Passover. Now let me stop there. There's a lot of people in this church, good God-fearing Christians, who still take the time to celebrate Passover. They do a lot of the Jewish feasts. They observe those things. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we as Christians cannot be held uh, under guilt or shame or condemnation of people who celebrate those things because we might choose not to. We have been liberated of those past things, and now we are called to celebrate communion and celebrate the Lord's death until he comes. Things were changed when this Last Supper took place. So this is what Paul said. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, remembering Jesus Christ. Okay, so here's the thing. There's probably not a true Christian, true denomination, true church or anything that does not think that communion is important. I would say any of you who've been in church for any length of time, even not even a long time, any of you who come from a Catholic church or Baptist church or Pentecostal or whatever, all denominations think that communion is a very serious thing. All Christians do. The problem comes in though, is what method do we use to celebrate communion? And what does it mean when we take communion? It's pretty obvious, just practically speaking, that we can't get together every single week and take four or five hours and bring lamb and unleavened bread and all of us drink four glasses of wine and spend time reclining with each other. That's, that's not exactly practical. So if that's not practical, how do we celebrate? How do we honor communion, okay? Now, before I get into this section, there's several different interpretations of what communion means, and there's lots of different methods. It kind of varies from group to group, church to church, denomination to denomination. Now, this is a minor to me. What I mean by a minor, communion is not a minor. Communion is very important. But the method of communion, there's not a lot of instruction given to us in the Bible on how we're to take communion. I'll get into that in a second. So I want to tell you these three things that I'm going to show you to me. If you believe in some of these things or don't believe in some of these things, it's not a heaven or hell issue, okay? The first one is this, and some of you guys are familiar with this if you were raised Catholic, which is called transubstantiation. Now, what transubstantiation is this. It's the idea that the bread and the wine presented at communion literally become the body and blood of Jesus. This happens. It's not always the body and blood of Jesus. It transforms into the body and blood of Jesus 
when the priest holds up the elements, prays for them, blesses them, and says, this is my body, this is my blood. And the Catholic view would believe that there is a miraculous thing that takes place, that it literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus. And when you come and receive that, you are literally ingesting the body and blood of Jesus. Now, this can only be done by the priest, which they usually call that the consecrated host. That's the one who holds it up. So a priest or a deacon in the Catholic church. Now, a biblical problem that, that one may have with this is in 1 Peter 2.9, where it says that we're all a royal priesthood, that any of us can partake in this, any of us can kind of be a leader or, or, or a, a giver of communion, if you will. So the fact that only one person can do it and that it's not holy or spiritual unless that one person does it, there's kind of some biblical problems with that. Another kind of biblical problem that one may have with transubstantiation is that a lot of times Christ was not being literal. And so when you literally think it's the body and blood, most, I shouldn't say most, a lot of people don't believe Christ was being literal when he said, this is my body and blood. Just like when Jesus said he's a vine, he's not really a vine. Just like when Jesus said he's the door, he's not really a door. Just like he said the new covenant is a cup, it's not literally a cup. That was a figurative statement. So there's a problem there too. Another, people, uh, another problem that people may have with transubstantiation is in the Catholic view, and they would kind of argue this, so I'm not, I'm not accusing this of them, but a lot of people believe this about Catholics, is they would say that, that uh, the Eucharist that they take fails to see the finality of the cross. What I mean by that is this. Most of us would agree, if you're a Christian in here, that what Jesus did on the cross is done. Jesus doesn't have to die again. He doesn't have to shed his blood again. It's done. He did it once that paid for the sins forever. They kind of teach in Catholicism that when you take the Eucharist, it is the blood being shed over and over and over again for your sins. And so we would kind of maybe disagree with that a little bit. Another view on communion is called consubstantiation. I know you guys were like driving here today being like, man, I wonder what the difference between trans and consubstantiation is. Well, here we go, right? So consubstantiation is the Lutheran view. Now, if you don't know anything about Martin Luther, Martin Luther um, did not like Catholics a lot, right? In fact, you can Google Martin Luther farting jokes, Catholic papacy. And like, he used to make like fart jokes about popes and stuff like, just didn't like the Pope, didn't like the Catholic Church. So Martin Luther rejected pretty much everything the Catholics said, except with communion. He kind of adopted some of that. Whenever the Catholics say, this is my body, Martin Luther agreed with that to an extent. So what he created was kind of a different idea that said Jesus' body is not literally the bread, his blood is not literally the wine, but they're present in those elements. Kind of like how you'd say a sponge is not the water, but it holds the water. That's essentially what Martin Luther would say. Now, the, the problem with this view, and I'm not trying to be uh, uh, a jerk about this or anything, the problem with this view is there's just not much biblical support for it. It just doesn't, it, it doesn't take a literal view. It doesn't take a figurative view. It kind of blends the two, and there's just not a whole lot of support for this. So the Anglican church does that. The Lutheran church does that, but not a lot of churches uh, really adhere to it. The last view is this, and this is probably where a lot of us fall. It's called the symbolic view or the Protestant view. So many leaders, church leaders, in the uh, 16th and 17th centuries agreed. They all kind of unanimously got together and talked about communion. And they said, we don't literally think the bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus, but it is symbolic 
It's a reminder. It's something we can taste and touch and smell and feel that reminds us of what Jesus has done. Now, that is not to say it's not spiritual. And it's not to say that the Holy Spirit is not present with us when we do this, but it's not literally becoming a part of Jesus Christ. This is what John Calvin said. He's one of the reformers. By the showing of the symbol, the thing itself is also shown. For unless a man means to call God a deceiver, he would never dare assert that an empty symbol is set forth by Jesus. Whenever we see symbols appointed by the Lord, they think and are persuaded that the truth of the thing is signified, is surely present there. What he's saying is, just because communion is symbolic does not mean it's not spiritual. Just because it's, baptism is just symbolic, I don't know if you guys know this or not, there's not an additive we put in the baptismal water that literally washes your sin off you. Whoa, look at all that lust in the water. That's not the way it works. <laughs> it is, <laughs> not saying that any of you would ever struggle with such a sin, but I'm just saying, it doesn't literally wash the sin off of you. It's a symbolic thing. Just like communion, I believe, is not literally the body and blood of Jesus. It's symbolic of the fact that he gave his body and blood for me. So in essence, the symbolic view teaches that the physical elements are a tangible reminder. Listen, when we taste the bread, like that awesome tasting matzah bread, right? When we take the bread, it's bitter, it's stale, there's not much flavor to it. When I take that, it reminds me that what Jesus went through was ugly. What he did on the cross, that if we would have been a spectator, it would have been disturbing. It would have been tasteless. It would have been vile. It would have been an awful thing to witness. That's what that reminds me of. But then when I wash the matzah bread down with that sweet juice, it reminds me of the, that Christ loved me so much. He would spill his blood for me, that he loves me so much that salvation is sweet, that grace is sweet, that God just adores me more than anything. That's what those things remind me of. And so we get this, uh, we, we get this reminder, not only of the cross, but of the resurrection. Not only of the cross and the resurrection, we get a reminder of the fact that God's spirit was poured out for us, that we can commune with God, that we can have harmony with God. So, there's these different kind of ideological views of communion. There's these different methods. It can be very formal. It can be very casual. There's these different things. So what are the parameters of communion? What does the Bible say we can and cannot do as far as communion goes? Now, what tends to happen a lot, not just with Catholics, Lutherans, Anglicans, but with Church of Christ and Baptists, and I'm not picking on anyone, but what people tend to have is they have a tradition that their denomination has set forth when it comes to communion. So when we do next class, we're doing one tomorrow, people a lot of times ask, they're just like, well, why do you guys do communion the way you do it? You know, we, we used to do it like this at the church I went to, and I'm like, well, why don't you go back to the church you went to? But anyways, um, so people are, <laughs> that was ugly, I shouldn't have said that. But anyways, so people say, well, we used to do it like this, or this is the way I prefer to do it. And I kind of give them clarity. Well, there's not a lot of description in the Bible on how we take communion. So here's the thing. Most methods of communion that Christians are comfortable with are not necessarily biblical methods. If we want to be strict to the Bible, again, we take communion for four hours together or so every single week. They're traditional. And there's nothing wrong with traditional methods of doing it. There's nothing wrong with, with uh, doing it in, in a very ceremonial way. There's nothing wrong with that. But we must know that we are not bound to anything that is not biblical. 
I'm not held to the standards of the Baptists or the Pentecostals or the Catholics or the Anglicans. I'm held to the standard of God. And so we need to make sure that we have a certain amount of freedom. There's a lot of wiggle room that the Bible gives us on certain things. Now, what that wiggle room is called, again, because I know you guys were driving to church talking about the normative principle, that that wiggle room, <laughs> that wiggle room that the Bible gives us sometimes, that is called the normative principle. Now, it sounds fancy. It's not. All the normative principle is, it's the idea that whatever the Bible doesn't say no to can be used in corporate worship within reason, right? What that means is musical styles. The Bible doesn't talk about musical styles, so we can use any kind of musical style we want. PowerPoints, uh, multimedia, lighting, video, art, etc. We can use those things as long as it doesn't compromise or contradict the Bible. The other side of that is called the regulative principle. I won't make you raise your hand, but if you raise Church of Christ, I'm not picking on Church of Christ, my favorite church in town is a Church of Christ church, but the Church of Christ are more regulative, which means there's no music mentioned in the New Testament, so we're not gonna have musical instruments. That's a regulative principle. Now here's the thing, all Christians are to be unified by one spirit, the Bible says. We are to have a core set of beliefs, but because different cultures have different needs, things can change, methods can change. When Brooker goes and speaks in Uganda, it's a completely different culture than it is in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. We're very casual here. We can have big bushy beards and stuff and like preach and still be okay. And over there you cannot. They make him wear a suit and tie. He has to trim his beard super close because they have an issue with radical Muslims in that era of Uganda. And so they make him trim his beard super short because Brooker kind of looks Middle Eastern anyways. But anyways, <laughs> they do that and, ma and make sure, <laughs> let's just move on, right? <laughs> so there are components of worship that the Bible does speak about, right? I believe in the normative principle, which means we have some wiggle room, but there are some definitive things that the Bible says you have to do this in corporate worship settings. There's only four of them. Read and teach the word of God, sing spiritual songs, pray and observe the sacraments of baptism and communion. That's all the Bible instructs us to do. When you guys get together, we have to do these four things. And so I would agree, or most people would agree, that it's clear. These are things that the Bible tells us to do. But where we argue and where different denominations have a rub is how do we do these things? How frequently, how often, what does it look like? So what do we have to do to observe communion correctly? Again, the Bible doesn't really tell us. Very little is said about how to do communion in a corporate setting like this. But there is one piece of instruction that is extremely substantial when it comes to communion. Please listen to me during this. When we choose to take communion, the Bible says we must examine ourselves, which means if there is any unrepentant sin in our lives, if there is any hatred, if there is anything that we need to deal with other people with, is there some kind of thing holding us up from being square with Jesus? And if there is, we should not take communion. Because if we take communion and there is unrepentant sin in our lives, it says in the Bible, we take communion and we bring condemnation on ourselves, judgment upon ourselves. So the only real stipulation that the Bible puts out for communion is you need to make sure that you have asked Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So some things have the flexibility to change. Theology, which 
fancy word for saying what the Bible says. What the Bible says never changes. But how we present the Bible has always changed. Whenever you hear churches say, well, we do it just like they did in the book of Acts. I'm like, really? So you did it in hiding with no electricity? That's awesome. Tell me about that. Not, no one does it just like they did in the book of Acts. No one does it just like they did back then because things have changed. The theology hasn't changed, but how we present the gospel, how we present communion adapts and changes. When this church was 30 people, I personally passed communion to everyone in the church. We got together in a huddle and we prayed. You can't do that with 2,500 people. I guess we could. That would be a huge circle, right? We could do something like that, I guess. But it's hard. It has to adapt. Now, listen, I should have made this bold and yellow. But this last sentence, all of you need to read this. This is very important. We need to be careful not to make the intimacy with God into a religious act as opposed to a relational experience. We need to be careful, not just with communion, with everything. We need to be careful that we don't do things simply because we feel like we have to, but we do things because we want to have an intentional relationship with Jesus, okay? So we may disagree on some methods, we may disagree on some interpretations of communion, but we all agree that it's important. And why is it important? Let me go over a couple of things. This is it. The first reason why communion is exceptionally important is when you choose to take it, you are affirming that we have faith in Jesus. When we take the bread and we take the juice, we're professing not only that we agree that only the body and blood of Jesus can save us. Listen, we are owning the fact, we are admitting the fact that it was my sins that put him on the cross. Let that soak in for a second. When we take communion, we are admitting that it was what I did. We are partially responsible for Jesus being nailed to the cross. So that should be a very sobering, very humble time when we take communion. We're also remembering the cross. The broken bread symbolizes the broken body of Jesus, abused and tortured and spat upon, that Jesus suffered for us. And when we drink the cup of juice, that symbolizes his blood being poured out for us. His blood that covers up our sin, covers up our shame, that gives us salvation. Again, this should be sobering. This should be a deep moment. This should be a humbling moment. This should sometimes quiet us. This should be a very reverent experience. We also remember the benefits of the cross. When we take communion, we remember that we are recipients of grace, of freedom, of hope, that we're liberated not from physical captivity, but we're liberated from porn addiction. We're liberated from sexual sin. We're liberated from shame and guilt. We're liberated from uh, greed. We're liberated from materialism. We're liberated from all those things that the blood of Christ can do that for us. We also remember that we have the promise of salvation, that we have eternity, that our souls can be saved and that we can be with the Creator forever. We receive spiritual nourishment when we take communion. Like the bread and juice entering into our body, we're reminded that the Holy Spirit must be inside of us, that we must rest, we must abide in God. He lets us recharge. He lets us refuel so we can go out into the world and engage the world around us again. We're reminded that we're to be unified. 
I guess the biggest complaint that people have with this church when we take communion is I don't stand up here and present it and we don't do it as a unified group. Guys, if we were to do that, if you've ever been to a Catholic mass, which I actually like Catholic mass quite a bit, the, the priest speaks for about 10 minutes because the whole, re- it's a homily, the whole rest of the service has to be communion. Because if you have 2,500 people or in this service, there's probably 1,000 people in this service. When you have 1,000 people, it would take a long time for us to all get the elements, sit back down, and we do all this, and all of us take it. We just simply, it's not practical right now. But when we take communion, even if it's just you and your friend, or you and your family, or just you by yourself, we are reminded that we are in this together. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are unified. We are a body that needs to be in sync with itself. We also remember during communion that Jesus is personal. It's the neatest thing about our God is that he is a personal God. And when we take communion, we remember, listen, that Jesus invited us to sit with him like family. He calls us friends. He calls us sisters, brothers, that we are family with him. He invites us, I love what the Bible says, to recline with him. I love this. I'm sure there were many times that Jesus joked around with his disciples and they told funny stories and they probably picked on Peter because he always lost his cool. And you know, like they, they, they probably had a good time with each other. They reclined with him. And so we're reminded in communion that God is close. He's here. He's personal. He's with us right now. We also have the hope of salvation. Listen, communion now reminds us of the communion to come when there will be no more night, like we talked about last week, no more sickness, no more pain, no more awful things, no more war, no more uh, economic collapses, none of that. Communion now reminds me that one day I will get to sit with all of you, that I'll get to sit with all the great heroes of our faith, and I will get to sit with the great host of the banquet, Jesus Christ, and we will celebrate. That reminds us that the pain of this life is not forever. And one day we will exchange the pain of this life for the eternal joy that Jesus is going to give us in heaven. That's what communion reminds us of. Listen, here's the thing. Communion is an invitation. It's an invitation from God to sit at his table. It's an invitation to come and be deeply personal with our Savior. But when we are invited to the table, just like you don't walk into your friend's house or walk into someone's house that invited you for dinner, kick off your shoes and be like, what's for dinner? When are we eating? What do you got to drink? We're not rude. We have reverence. And with Jesus, we need to come and approach him repentant. We need to make sure that we've apologized to him for whatever we've done that contradicts his word. We need to make sure we not only apologize for what we've done wrong, True repentance means that, God, I have broken your word, I have broken your instruction, and I want to change. I don't want to always do this. I want to get away from this. I want to be closer to you and further from sin. That's what repentance is. We must approach with reverence. Sometimes I feel like we're a generation, and I'm not just talking about millennials, I'm talking about all of us right now, that we're a generation that has lost a proper reverency of God. I know I got my shoes kicked off and I know we're comfortable. That's not what I'm talking about. Reverency is not wearing nice shoes and a $3,000 suit. That's not reverency. I'm talking about how we are are in awe of God, how we are to slow down and just meditate and think on the enormity of God's power, his grace, his love, that we have reverence for him. We are to approach communion with reverence. We're to be hopeful. We're to be expectant. Jesus died and poured out his Holy Spirit so we would have 
permanent communion with him so we could eventually get to heaven and be with him forever to pass on this life, this life of pain and agony and sorrow and suffering, and one day inherit an eternity with him. And we have this hope, we have this expectancy when we take communion. We know that we must be dependent on the Holy Spirit. When I realize the enormity of the cross, I realize that I am insufficient. You are insufficient. That we cannot be the moms, dads, husbands, wives, employers, employees, Students, we can't be what God wants us to be unless his Holy Spirit is leading us, unless he's inside of us, unless he's working through us. We cannot be what God has designed us to be. Listen, communion is a time for you to stop. We live in a culture that just cannot settle down. And when we do try to settle down, we still gotta be on our phone, right? We always gotta be doing something. Do you know what the punishment was for not taking a Sabbath day in the Old Testament? Death. That sounds crazy, Corey. God would have people kill you if you didn't rest and relax. Yes, the reason why God went to that crazy extreme is because it was so important that we take time and just be still and know that God's in control. There's so much stress waiting for you outside of these four walls. There's always going to be emails to be answered and more you can do for work and more you can study for that test. There's gonna be marital issues and family issues. They're all waiting for you outside of these doors. So why not take this time in this sanctuary that we have to stop for a second and rest and relax? Guys, I'm gonna be slightly rude here for a second. I know everyone wants to like beat the Baptist to Shoney's, you know, on, at the 11 o'clock service or Western Sizzler or Ryan's or wherever Christians eat now, right? Um, it can't be Chick-fil-A because it's closed on Sundays. Uh, I know everyone's in a hurry, guys. I know you're busy, but when we have, and I know football season's about to kick up and don't get me started on that. Um, the people are like, whoa, can't take communion today. We got to get out of here. We got stuff to do. I got to mow the yard. I got to answer emails. Listen, it's not going to cramp your lifestyle to take 10 minutes and commune with the Lord. Those things can wait. The most important thing you can ever do in your entire life is not answer emails. It's, it's, it's not even being with your wife and kids. The most important thing you can ever do is stop and take some time to rest in the presence of God. I know it takes time to get communion, especially at the 11. We have stations set up all the way around this, this, this sanctuary, and I know it takes time, but guys, you just need to pause for a second. Be still for a second. Another thing about this invitation to the table, it's a time, listen, listen to me carefully. It's not only a time to reflect on what he has done, it's time to reflect on what I can do if the Holy Spirit is inside of me. It's a time to reflect that Jesus Christ has commissioned me to go out and change my neighborhood. He has commissioned you to go out and change your schools and your city and your government. That he has commissioned us to go out and be an ambassador for him to change the hearts and minds of mankind. It's not only what he has done it, but it's what we can do. 
if he is present inside of us. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to challenge all of you to change your mindset. What Christianity has done, and I love Christianity. I love the church. Not just this church. I love the church. I had lunch with a great Anglican priest last week, and I had, I had lunch with the, the pastor of First United Methodist recently, and, and the pastor of the North Boulevard Church of Christ, who I'm very close to. And I love the church and all of its forms and fashions. But what we've done is we tend to either make our faith highly mechanical and legalistic. I take communion because God told me to do it. It doesn't matter where my heart is, but he told me to do this. I better hold my hands like this. I better not take it. I better stick out my tongue this far when the priest puts it on. All these things that are just ridiculous in my opinion. And we've made it mechanical. And we've taken the passion and the heart straight out of what God has asked us to do. So a lot of people go that mechanical route. And then in the South, I've noticed a lot of people go down this very flippant route. Man, I know communion's great, but man, geez, the Titans are playing in 10 minutes. Man, UT's on today. We gotta get out of here. Do you ever sit back objectively and say, wow, I sacrificed some intimate time with the Lord so I could have some intimate time with my TV? Do you think about that? And so we have to change the way we think. Our faith is not mechanical, nor is it flippant. Our faith, listen, is an opportunity. It is an invitation to sit down with God. To rest in Him. To listen to Him. To speak to Him. Guys, like, I, I hope one day I can get our church to a place to where you guys feel comfortable just like sitting in corners or sitting on the floor, getting up and walking, whatever the case may be. This is your sanctuary. This is a safe place for you. Use that. Take advantage of that. And listen, if you don't feel like you need to take communion every week, that's totally fine. If you're not straight, if something's amiss with you and the Lord, I, I, you don't need to take communion. But if you don't want to take it, if you would rather catch the game or, or beat the traffic or whatever, and I'm not trying to be mean to you, Please be respectful of the people that do want to take communion in here. Maybe take your conversation out in, the, out in the foyer, out in this foyer, out in the parking lot. Just, just It's a reverent, deeply spiritual, deeply important time that we have with the Lord. I love you guys so much. Please don't miss an opportunity. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if there's anyone in this room who is not a Christian, I want to tell you I'm really, really glad that you're here. I hope something that was said today has sparked an interest in you. I hope if you're here looking for the truth, that brings me a lot of hope because if you're looking for the truth, the Bible says you'll find the truth. You will find it. And so if you're in here and you're not a believer, I just want to encourage you, keep digging. If you have any questions, there's going to be men and women on the right and left of me. If you have any questions and you want to ask them, feel free. We have some of our elders of our church, some very great leaders up here at the front. If anyone wants to ask them questions, please do. If you need prayer for anything, come up here. Let them pray for you. And for, for the believers in the room, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, maybe you have made communion mechanical. Maybe it has just kind of lost its power with you, its zing. Or maybe it's just become flippant. You take it when it's convenient. You take it when it doesn't interrupt things. You take it when you come to the seven o'clock because maybe the service is smaller. And it's become just kind of a flippant thing. 
What I want to encourage you and challenge you today is to, to, to rethink how big of a deal communion is. And again, my apologies, God. I, guys, I have not taught this the way I should over the years. Forgive me. But today, you have a pretty good working knowledge of the, of the enormity of communion. I invite you. There's tables in the back, on the sides, and in the front. It may take you a little bit of time, but get, get the bread, get the juice, sit down with your family or your friends or just you, and maybe today just meditate. Think about the enormity of what Jesus has done for us. Ponder it. Let it soak in. If you need to talk to him, repent for your sins. Ask God to forgive you. If there's insecurities, ask him to help you. Be intimate with him today. He's here. He's present. Lord Jesus, God, I love you so much. I love you so much. I thank you so much for this church. I love this church. I love this church, God. I just pray that you speak to our hearts, God. If there's any sin in our lives that needs to be exposed by you, if you need to shine light on some corners of our hearts, God, and bring things out and expose things to us that we need to ask for forgiveness for, please do that, God. If there's any non-believers in this room, Lord, speak to their hearts. And Lord, I pray that you start to give them some kind of sign or, or speak to them in some way, God, to show them the truth. And Lord, as we take communion today, I just pray, God, uh, that we honor you, Lord. And for some reason, God, you've chose to honor us. And we're so grateful, Lord. Thank you for your grace, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. Have a great week.